and welcome to this very special edition of the Keith Shelley podcast. My name is James Kidd, and today's episode is part of a short mini series of pods or podulates inspired by the theme of this year's Keith Shelley and Young Romantics Prizes, which is writ in water. The phrase was taken from John Keats' epitaph, Here Lies One Whose Name Was Writ in Water, which was itself writ on his gravestone in 1823. This epitaph is very much in our thoughts in 2021 as we commemorate the bicentenary of Keats' death in Rome, page just 25. And one of the ways I wanted to consider this saddest of events was to think about the part the epitaph has played in what Keats himself called his posthumous life. They may not be quite his final words, but these 10 syllables might just be his final line of poetry. And in today's episode, I wanted to think what it means to writ or even to write on water, and even more, what it might mean to write writ on water on stone. Well, if you're confused, I hope you won't be for very much longer, because I'm very glad to say we have an excellent guest to help us unravel this tangle or um, untangle this ravel, and that's Adam Smythe joining me via uh, the Keith Shelley Zoom satellite feed. Adam, are you are you there? Come in, Adam. I'm in, I'm here. I'm orbiting. I'm in in the pod. That it's spinning very fast, but I can see you and I can hear you. It's very good to see you. Now, there's quite a lot of information of about him out on what we call the internet. Um, he is the professor of English literature and the history of the book. The A.C. Bradley, J.C. Maxwell Fellow, is that right? Yeah, the title just sort of goes on and on and on. It's, it's yes, a bit it embarrassing, does. really. But you're based at Balliol College. That's right, Balliol Oxford. College in Oxford, exactly. And, and teaching both English literature and, and the history of the book, too, which I guess is why we're talking today. The history of the book sounds intimidatingly vast. Uh, could you explain in maybe 32 seconds what, what might be meant by the, the history of the book? Well, I think coming from an English literature perspective, coming from a reader and enthusiast for poetry and literature, the history of the book or any of its other slightly sexier titles like uh, material text, for example, means really basically thinking about the forms uh, through which literature was written and circulated and read and transmitted. So it would mean thinking about a poem um, by Keats in terms of the handwritten copy that might survive or the first printed copy produced on paper or the annotated copy that survives by someone. I mean, in a sense, all texts are material texts. All texts have some form of bodiliness. They're written on paper or they're printed or they're vapor trails in the sky or they're indeed written in water. Um, but to emphasize material text, I think is to emphasize an approach means I'm gonna think about the forms of that writing took. I'm, I'm interested in how they were first written, how they were printed, circulated, what they were like in the hand, and how the poem, for example, changes if we're aware of those materialities, if we're aware of paper and layout and binding and annotation and the size of the book and all these other interesting questions. One of the things that would, would interest me immediately is the notion of what do we mean by a book and it sounds to me that what we mean by a book, which would be that we nick down to the, the local Waterstones or WH Smith, or we, we would do before the, um, the coronavirus pandemic, and pick up various pieces of paper stuck together in whatever way and place between two other pieces of paper on which would be written 
the author's name, a title of the book, probably blurbs and a, a description of it. But this this so this idea of a book may be rather limiting for, for when we consider the history of the, the book. It could be uh, a piece of paper. It could be lots of other things as well. Is that? I think that's right. I think I think the history of the book for a long time has unsurprisingly been preoccupied with the book as a form and the, the book meaning broadly printed text printed on paper paper that in the 17th and 18th century was came from linen and later on came from trees and that is bound and um, coherent in a codex form the, the form that we know as a book but lots and lots of interest recently in the history of the book has been in decentering that version of the book and thinking about all the other ways in which writing and text circulates in the, in the material world so thinking about loose sheets and ballads and broadsides maybe but looking back say to the 17th century and noticing that when people bought books in that period, like those Shakespeare plays, that they weren't bound, that they were, they were loose sheets that you would then buy and then perhaps buy seven or eight similar books and then take them along to your own binder and get them bound into a thing called a Samuel band or a kind of anthology. So I think it's really interesting to think about how our, our, our commonsensical idea of the book that you describe as that Waterstones phenomenon is quite helpful, but it doesn't tell the full story for the way in which text circulated as as objects all kind of strange forms and if we widen our gaze even further beyond the papery page then we start to think of writing in wood say or graffiti cut into stone or etching in glass or all manner of wilder and weirder forms of materiality could you give me just an example in in your own work that that you, you specialise in, in the early modern age. Are there particular examples of what sorts of uh, texts, what sorts of things that y you would be looking at and be interested in? I mean, I tend to try and go after the wackier, stranger kinds. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, for example, give me an example of that. There's, there's a fantastically interesting religious community at Little Gidding outside in Cambridge, or there was at least in the 17th century, the same community that preoccupied T.S. Eliot and he visited in the 1930s. But in the 1630s, this strange, interesting, part household, part amateur university, part Anglican monastery, part cult was founded by Nicholas Ferrer and his various nieces and brothers. And they perform lots of religious functions and ambitions. But one of the things they did was to produce cut and paste gospel Bibles, biblical harmonies, they were, they were called. So this, they would send out their little agents into London, Cambridge. They would buy printed gospels the kind that we might be familiar with today we might still see today and then they would take their scissors to those and cut them up in an attempt to re-scramble the text to make the four accounts of Jesus's life which are in fact uh, contradictory in all kinds of interesting ways make them coherent so they would buy the gospel cut it up reorder it and then glue it back together and produce these huge big folio books folio means basically massive made of sheets that have only been folded once so huge books and then they would illustrate them with cut out images too and all of this, which looks like a weird version of a ransom note crossed with a Sex Pistols album cover, is actually a, a form of uh, piety. It's, it's, it's an expression of their caring for the Gospels, not wanting to destroy them at all. So that's just an example. Somewhere out, out there on the fringes of, I would say, book culture from the 70th century. But it's not the tidy, carefully maintained, bound, coherent, printed book that we might imagine as, as being associated with religion or religious piety. It's things cut up, scrambled, glued back together again, um, an act of reverence that's also an act of violence. It's very weird as a, as a kind of bookish intervention, but I think 
characteristic in some ways of a period in which the book was often not coherent and bound and stable and fixed and finished, um, but kind of up for all kinds of all kinds of negotiation. That also sounds curiously modern as well. If you if you spend any time reading about David Bowie or you think about a lot of the you know con- modern um, the, the way that people are using computers to cut and remix, uh, whether it's music or text or. Um, it sounds is that is that we always feel that we've invented something, and you look at the people were actually literally sort of doing this cut and paste method uh, of of, of mix, mixing, matching what text and image and all sorts of, of different things. Totally, there's a really long, interesting history there to our notionally modern contemporary concepts of cutting and pasting that stretches back for centuries and ends us up in surprising places like this house in the middle of the fields in the countryside in the 1630s. I mean, often those terms are now metaphors or are disembodied as we digitally cut and paste and copy. Um, what's important for these early manifestations, I think, are the scissors and the glue and the little bits of biblical, tell like the word of God on a scrap of paper, literally, that's <laughs> fluttering across the room and hasn't been glued down <laughs> correctly. So all those haptic, touchy-feely qualities are important too for them, I think. Is there a line to be drawn about what we consider to be a text. Does it matter what the material might be? How, how long, it, uh, is, is everything sort of up for grabs in, in some way? I think everything is up for grabs. I mean, I think I would want to think of texts in the widest possible sense, which would be all kinds of, not just literary compositions or genres of writing that we're familiar with, but all kinds of mark making and inscriptions and symbols instantiated in all kinds of material forms. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to kind of uh, jettison the idea of the book entirely because in, in its kind of traditional, coherent, recognisable form, because that's still massively important too. But I think the virtue of these seeming outlier cases is that they often draw to the surface certain ideas of reading or writing that are always going on, and even in more conventional forms and books in, in really interesting ways. The strangeness of those cut-up Bibles and little gidding is that they make you think again about what does it actually mean to read something? Um, what is pious reading? How do we build a narrative? How do we navigate this strange book? Why is it that we've come to read in certain ways? Why do we decide to ma- manipulate the form of the book in particular ways? The, the very oddness of it makes us pause over those questions, which are much harder to answer if you're thumbing, as, as we were earlier, through the, the latest Jeffrey Archer. What are the sorts of materials that are most commonly used, and what, are, and perhaps, and, and maybe with a, with a view to also moving towards, what are the, some of the stranger sorts of texts that, that that you've seen or might might find interesting? Well, there was there was a lot of interest in the seventeenth century in writing on walls, for example. Uh, there was a lot of interest in in writing in glass. There was interest in invisible writing, invisible ink, particularly around the Civil War when royalists or parliamentarians, usually royalists in exile, are trying to communicate with each other in secret ways. And so there were lots of treatises and writing and thinking done about how to make invisible ink and how to make ink. And then feeding off all these realities, there were a load of poets who were interested, I think, in the poetic life um, or the metaphorical potential of these actual material forms. In other words, if you're a writer like Dunn or Abraham Cowley uh, and you're looking at 
bits of names cut into walls or stuff cut into glass. That's interesting as a, as a fact, but it's also poet, as a poetic conceit, I think it has a lot of life too. And so I think there are some brilliant examples of writers really running imaginatively with the idea of a different surface, a different writing tool, a different kind of ink, and how things change, how things change when you do that. I should probably make a small confession that you and I have, we've worked before in this kind of medium. We produced, directed, marketed a, a podcast called, called Lit Bits, where we would bring texts um, to discuss. Slightly in that spirit, I hope it's all right to bring a bit of, a bit of Keats. Yeah, so it's a, a letter to his brother and his new-ish sister-in-law his brother was called George and he he married conveniently a, a woman called Georgiana so you, you know if only life was always like that you would wouldn't really need to, any kind of greetings cards um his brother um, had just emigrated to America so the idea of leaving um of letters uh, is very much at the forefront of his of Keats's mind and he writes a poem uh, which is one of his slightly dashed off ones called sweet sweet is the greeting of eyes Sweet, sweet is the greeting of eyes, and sweet is the voice in its greeting. When adieus have grown old and goodbyes fade away, where old time is retreating. Warm the nerve of a welcoming hand and earnest a kiss on the brow. When we meet over sea and our land, where furrows are new to the plough. And there's a, a nice pun on greeting. Greeting means welcoming, but also crying in a kind of Scottish idiom. And at this point, rather conveniently, the letter sort of breaks down, there's gaps in it, and editors in a sort of slightly sort of Smythian way seek to try and transcribe all the gaps with dots and those nice little arrows. So you get that strange sense of, of, a, of a, a mobile phone conversation breaking up. This is all in the, please. And then this is Keats buffering. Yeah, this is Keats buffering. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if it's happening now, we're in trouble. That's Keith the title buffering. of the pod. And then he writes, we will, before many years are over, have written as many folio volumes, which as a matter of self-defence to one whom you understand, intends to be immortal in the best points, and let all his sins and peccadilloes die away. I mean to say that the booksellers will rather decline printing ten folio volumes of correspondence, printed as close as the Apostles' Creed in a watch paper, and then there's a nice hyphen. I have been looking out, my dear Georgie, for a joke or a pun for you, there is none but the names of romantic misses on the in-window panes. When you and I first met Adam, I think uh, we were both working at the, the London Library uh, near Piccadilly. And I sat staring out of a window in the London Library, trying to work out what the joke was. Is it about romantic misses? And I read lots of articles about people scratching their names about graffiti that people would leave their names a bit like we might do on the, I guess, as you were saying, on the wall or uh, at school, you would do it into a, into a desk. And I, for weeks, I tried to work out if there was a joke. And eventually I gave up. And one day I was doing something else and staring out of the window and thinking how much time I spent at the London Library staring out of the window. And I suddenly got what the joke was, which is the joke is not about the writing on the window. It's about the act of looking out of the window. Mm. It's not maybe... The parrot sketch. It's um, not, it's not, no, it's not. Or the cheese shop sketch. 
But what I liked about it, it felt like a writer's joke. It was a writer. It's about staring out of the window. It's about the transparency of writing, of, of, of that weird sense of looking through. It does somehow chime with the idea of writing on water, uh, writing on a surface that yeah. you can look through it. You, you can start thinking about Wordsworth looking over the side of the boat and seeing his reflection, but seeing deeper and all these sorts of things. Um, That's lovely, isn't it? I love that idea of looking through the glass and seeing nothing, but also at the same time seeing the names that are cut into it. And also wrapped up in this letter that's sort of about letters. And it, I like the pun, I, another pun I think on, printed as close as Apostles' Creed. So you'd have to write it very small to fit it in a, a watch paper with these little discs inserted in, in, in a watch, but close perhaps suggesting intimacy at a moment where the two brothers are as far apart um, as, as they ever would be. That reminds me very much, very, very much of a of a done poem, almost to the extent that I wonder if um, we know whether, um, and it's called A Valediction of My Name in the Window, and it's by John Donne, and it's printed in 1633. Um, it's not one of his better known poems, but it's a good example of a brilliant poet being interested in the idea of writing surfaces and seeing the poetic potential in that shift of surface and, and kind of running with it for imaginative metaphorical effect. And the scenario is that rather like James in the London Library, there's a window and there's some text in it and there's someone looking at it. And Dunn is looking at the glass and his mistress also, as with your example, is absent and is far away, but their names are cut into the glass. And so there's a kind of unity there, um, even as though there's no one there. And it's a poem that imagines the scene of looking at glass while also looking through glass and seeing names, but also seeing nothing at the same time. So let me just read, let, let me read a little excerpt from it, mm. which conveys some of these ideas. My name engraved herein, Dunn writes, doth contribute my firmness to this glass, which ever since that charm hath been as hard as that which graved it was. Thine eye will give it price enough to mock the diamonds of either rock. And here's the bit, the, the, the kernel of the poem, I think. Tis much that glass should be as all confessing and through shine as I. Tis more that it shows thee to thee and clear reflects thee to thine eye. But all such rules love's magic can undo. Here you see me and I am you. And I love that last line, here you see me and I am you. So there's that image of her looking in the glass and seeing his name, but she's also seeing a reflection of herself at the same time in this layering of, of text and image, which is a brilliant, yeah, a brilliant example, I think, of Dunn trying to dig out the sort of philosophical, um, metaphysical consequences of doing such a prosaic thing as cutting, cutting a name into glass and the, and the the play of absence and presence and invisibility and legibility that's going on there is really fascinating. Isn't that strange echo maybe of, of, of the Narcissus myth that, that the, the way language gets into a real tangle. I, I remember there's a, there's a moment you have to translate to something like I am he because the person you're seeing is, is other to use the lingo, um, but also it's yourself. But it's, mm. as uh, I've been reading to, to, to my daughter, um, lots of Lewis Carroll and um, Through the Looking Glass, there's all sorts of play on things. You look at yourself, but you're, you're reversed. Everything is sort of going 
backwards. It's the, it's an extraordinary image, isn't it? That you can see yourself in your eye, but there's a reflection of what what do you see except yourself? It's um, yeah. but you're also looking through. It's was it through through shine? Was that? Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, it's all confessing and through shine as I. This whole thing reminds me. There's a Louis McNeese poem, isn't there, in which he describes looking at a reflection um, of a room, and the whole poem is a very complicated, almost geom exercise, almost in geometry, or at least in space, mm. in spatial placement, and um, it's something like a riddle, and one has to work out through the complicated grammar and syntax which is reflection and which is object, and who's being gazed at and 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 on. My wife wrote an article which is about Dante Gabriel Rossetti's poem Jenny, which is about looking at a reflection and depending on which angle that you, you, you see, it's very hard to know quite who's in control, what's being seen, who's doing the gazing. It's all, it's all very, very peculiar and unnerving once you get into that, that backwards, backwards realm. One of the most um, uh, haunting moments <laughs> I'll remember is my friend Tim, who was very short-sighted. Years ago, I was in a nightclub, and we're sitting around a table, and he went to the went to the loo, and walked off. And then to get to the loo was through a glass door, and uh, it was quite dark and smoky. And he, and he really he has you know mole-like vision, um, these huge great beer glasses in his glass and his spectacles. And he approached the door. And I could see that there was no one there at all, but he saw this figure coming towards him and, and he quite graciously sort of ushered for this person to go first. <laughs> and then he saw this, this person doing the same and then so did it again and then you and felt locked in this endless kind of ushering. And then after about three or four, realized that there was no one there but himself. <laughs> and I don't know that he was thinking of Keats or Dunn at the time. things I, I'm enjoying another bit of your biography that, that talks about um, Renaissance collage towards a new history of reading exploring knives scissors and glue as tools yes. of, of, of reading I mean that that in itself is, is a phrase to conjure with what, what other surfaces might we consider um, that, that make a difference to the kind of texts well I mentioned earlier about invisible ink what one can never see or that requires some modification to come to to come to life and there was lots of that going on in the civil war and there's a brilliant poem that i wanted to read to you by, mm. by abraham cowley with the unusual title written in juice of lemon it describes a love poem being written by the narrator who may be cowley or maybe not or some refracted version of cowley and sending this letter which is written in lemon juice and then requires um, the application of a heat through a candle very, very close to the page in order to reanimate the ink and to produce something legible. And so it's an interesting moment of secret writing that's sent and then nearly has to be burned. It has to come as close to being destroyed as possible. And then suddenly the letters um, spring, spring forth. So it's not written in water, but it's written in lemon juice, which would, looks worse on a grave as a, as a, as a as a final line. But this is what Cowley says in describing how you bring to life these secret letters. So nothing yet in thee is seen, he says of the letter. So all the letters are still hidden, the lemon juice letters. But when a genial heat 
warms thee within, i.e. when a candle is brought to it, a newborn wood of various lines there grows. Here buds an A, and there a B, here sprouts a V, and there a T. Sounds like Malvolio in Twelfth Night trying to mm. work out cut out letter. Um, and all the flourishing letters stand in rows, still silly paper. Thou wilt think that all this might as well be writ with ink. Oh no, there's sense in this, and mystery. Thou now mayst change thy author's name, and to her hand lay noble claim. For as she reads, she makes the words in thee. Mm -hmm. That's a great last line. For as she reads, she makes the words in thee, in the sense that she reads the text, but has to apply the heat from the candle, the letters form before her very eyes. Mm -hmm. So she's reading, but she's also writing um, in a curious kind of way, or at least causing the text to appear legible for the first time. And I do, like, I do think one of the useful consequences of thinking about unusual writing surfaces is that it makes us pause about, pause on these fundamental questions of what is reading and what is writing and who's producing the text and who's consuming it. Where is, where is the text? What, what kind of agency does it um, record and release when it's read? And Cowley's poem is sort of worrying around those interesting questions, I think, in a way that would be hard to get at if you're just writing about a printed letter or a handwritten letter um, of the kind you're continually sending to me. That, that interesting use of fire actually did, um, I just happened to have in my back pocket a copy of William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Um, and this was actually, this is like sort of improvised because um, I always do have it with me. But that notion of, of fire creating words and creating the in this term the sort of the means of the means of production it's plate 14 which is quite hard to see in this in this slightly gloomy room the first the notion that man has a body distinct from his soul is to be expunged this i shall do by printing in the infernal method by corrosives which in hell are salutary and medicinal melting apparent surfaces away and displaying the infinite which was hid and this describes this, this process that Blake used, which I don't think he ever called relief etching, but, but has come to be relief etching, where he did this extraordinary thing that if you think the Blake um, illustrations aren't extraordinary enough, he wrote backwards and, 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 and produced his images backwards. Then I think applied this kind of varnish to the, to the words and to, and to the images and then used acid to, to corrode all of the stuff around it, leaving a sort of little, almost like a sort of mountain of, of, of text. But in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, he seems to use the, this, this means of production this, as an extraordinary way of then directing your own reading to what might be inverted, might be upside down, might be read across. Um, Fascinating that sense of what happened, if you're a writer, what happens to your relationship to words and narrative and story and imagery if you shift your means of production, if you shift your writing surface, shift your writing tool, and you stop writing on paper with a pen, and then you start typing on a computer, but then if you start cutting stuff into stone with a chisel and the slowness of that, if you're, if you're chipping away into a gravestone that takes half an hour or an hour to do a couple of words, you're, you're sort of in the process of those words unfolding in a completely different way. Yes. Similarly, if you're setting type and hand printing stuff, words are suddenly composed of fiddly little bits of lead 
um, which are also back to front and easily droppable. There are these amazing stories of 19th century American newspaper editors who wrote directly into type, I think, who had a set type rather than writing and then setting it. That's really interesting if you're thinking about letters as these metal objects that you grasp and hold and set down and then drop and have to, at the end of printing, yeah, particularly at the end of printing, when you've done your page, mm -hmm. then you put all the letters back in their boxes and then they kind of live again to fight another, to fight another round with whatever you set next. So, so I think, uh, yeah, that uh, a literary writer probably has a whole, you know, a, a different sense of possibility before them if they shift their, their medium and their, their way of writing in really interesting ways. I know that you've um, worked with a, a, a printing press and produced uh, text. Does, does, does working with that yourself, does, in the way that um, you, you were just describing, it, it makes one feel aware of words as kind of, and, and letters as, as, as ob objects of art. Um, yeah, and and also about the, the 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 really precarious sense of writing. I was think, thinking that the poem with holding a candle under under a, um, a piece of paper to to produce words, but also that gives a sense of danger too. That if you one slip and you you ruin the effect. In Blake's case, I know it was incredibly precarious. That if you put too much acid, if you applied the ink in the wrong way, the whole thing was completely. Uh, ru ruined. Have you had that sense? Definitely. It does feel incredibly precarious and fragile and a slip away from disaster and, and, and extraordinarily slow as well. I mean, if you set, for example, a sonnet, I'm not very good at printing, but if I set a sonnet, it would take me a day to do 14 lines. And then it's this beautiful square of dense lead, tiny little letters. And as you move it from various surfaces and put it in, kind of lock it up and then put it into the press, it's a terrifying transition because the whole thing is threatened with absolute destruction. In a way that's hard for us to get our heads around when everything is backed up now in some sort of cloudy file in Silicon Valley, but it really is all gone um, if you drop it. So it raises the stakes in really, really interesting ways. I think that's right. And the other thing is if you do printing, I mean, my, my assumption is, that the means of producing texts fed back into the literary choices that writers were making in some kind of way. Mm. But, it's, it, but, but it's amazing that long, long form writing took off, that the novel established itself in the way that it did. And I thought if, I knew, if all I knew about literature was how difficult and slow printing was, I would put all my money on the fact that you know, the lyric poem or the haiku would become the most prestigious and dominant form of, of writing. And the idea that Moby Dick or Ulysses or something like that could ever flourish. It's an absolute disastrous fit for what printing is as a technology. And yet somehow that drive to create these massive vast worlds so, you know, endures the attritional labor that it, that it requires. Long, yeah, long prolix work. It's a miracle that they flourish in the way they do, I think, or did at least before we could print everything out easily. There's a lot of interest in the 17th century is a, is a massive century for epitaph and epitaph collecting there's this guy called john weaver uh -huh. crazy antiquarian who publishes this 900 page folio volume of copies of 
Great tombstone inscriptions. <laughs> Crazy. But he thinks of them as literary texts more than genealogical ones. Well, the Shakespeare um, one's interesting for that. This this famous, I mean, whether he wrote... Not removing the bones, that one. Yeah, right? the, the cut yeah. and dust and bones. And In terms of your work and, and what does... What would writing in water and, and, and then writing in stone and writing in water being written in stone, what, what sorts of thoughts? What's going on there? Yeah. yeah. It's complicated, isn't it? Here lies <laughs> one whose name was writ in water. In part, it's interesting because it's, it's one medium reflecting on another, isn't it? It's um, letters on stone, thinking about or remembering or recording. If we take those lines literally for a moment, letters in water um, and there's a long tradition isn't there of different art forms rather competitively eyeing each other up and jostling mm. the most famous one being the poetry and painting and the relationship between the two mm. endlessly thought about and whether poetry is a kind of speaking pictures or whether poems are a kind of gold standard which poetry strives towards so I think one, one way to think about that 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 little line is to place it in that in that kind of long history of um media battles uh between words and images or between print and manuscript or between um different 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 kind of surfaces but the, the word that always kind of preoccupies me or what I'm uncertain about is that word in here lies one whose name was writ in water and so what does in mean? What does it mean to write in water? Mm. And I guess, and we imagine a finger tracing a name in water. Then the metaphor, so, so the water is being traced onto a sturdier surface, say. And that has a particular imaginative consequence, doesn't it? In, in which I suppose Keats's name is fragile and momentary and transient and passes, dries off or disappears. But the surface beneath it, the support, the substrate, as some strange people might say, the world remains. But if we, but, but the line, the name writ in water, that reminds me of writing your name in sand. And if we say we're writing our name in sand, we don't mean that we're using sand to form the letters. It means that we're taking our hand, finger and making marks into the sand. So I guess that's another, a second meaning of in, that the name is somehow, that the water is the substrate or the, 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 the papery-like surface on which something is being written. And then if that's the case, then the, the metaphor, the image changes, doesn't it? Because there's a more existential sense of flux, that there isn't a stable surface beneath which words can be written, even if those words are momentary or transient. Everything is in, in flux and everything is uncertain. And there's no ground, there's no kind of base on which on which to write. So I think there is something really interesting there going on about that word in and how, how it makes us think about um, letter forms and surface and collapses the two really into this kind of whirlpool of um, what is being written and what is being written on and where is the name and where is the memory of Keats. So I think it's complicated. Is it the, is, is it the ink? Is it the paper? Is it both at the same time? I think there's a hint of a pun. I mean, Keats did love a pun. Mm. Um, I think there is a slight sense that writ, writ in water becomes written water. The thing it reminds me of can, is, is, is that Thomas Hardy, Hardy poem that I was only reading fairly recently, During Wind and Rain, it's called. It's from um, 
Moments of Vision, that collection from 1917. And it's, it's, it's hardy, it is most hardy in that he's <laughs> imagining or remembering or observing delightful local moments of happiness and shot through each of them is the sense that this will pass. It's momentary, it's a bubble that's gonna burst. And soon these people will be around no more. So it begins, they sing their dearest songs, he, she, all of them, yea, treble and tenor and bass, and one to play with the candles mooning each face. Ah, no, the years, oh. How the sick leaves reel down in throngs. <laughs> Such a miserable. How the sick leaves reel down in throngs. They clear the creeping moss, elders and juniors eye, making the pathways neat and the garden gay and they build a shady seat. Ah, oh, no, the years, the years. But the very end of the poem was the bit that reminded me of the Keats imagery of the, of the stone, the lettering, the water. Let me just read that to you. They changed to a high new house, he, she, all of them, I, clocks and carpets and chairs on the lawn all day and brightest things that are theirs. Ah, oh, no, the years, the years. Down their carved names, the raindrop plows. And what about that for a final line? The happy scene of prospect and singing and movement and houses and, and then down their carved names, the raindrop plows. And it seemed, um, and it reminded me of the Keats line, obviously, because there's a names carved into presumably a tombstone or gravestone and then water tracing a path across it. And invoking because he liked his keats didn't he hardy he did yeah invoking but playing around with the idea of surface and text i think and the permanence of the names are there but the mobile raindrop plows kind of that violent word plows <laughs> plows a path down and cuts right through them Plough is a good word there because it's just relentless and unending. Yes. It won't stop like the plough all day and the, the total inevitability of the raindrop making its kind of cutting progress through these yeah. names is um, not quite terrifying. Something like terrifying, I think. Thank you very much, Adam. That was, that was great. Really... It was really good. I, I, I better go because it's. Yeah. You know, I've got to say my prayers. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Keats Shelley House and the Keats Shelley Memorial Association. You can find out more about the Keats Shelley House, including our history, collections and Keats Shelley 200 Bicentenary at ksh.roma.it. For news about 2021's Keats Shelley and Young Romantics Poetry and Essay Prizes, visit keatsshelley.org and click Prizes. To support the museum by becoming a friend or making a donation, stay at keatsshelley.org and click Support Us. This episode was written and presented by James Kidd. The music is Androids Always Escape by Chris Zabriskie. Visit chriszabriskie.com. No, that was great. It's really good. I was, we did, I was just I was thinking, um, you said about Tom Phillips. He did a couple of human pages about lockdown and COVID. They're really good. So he found, like, you know, in Malik, he found uh, lockdown, definitely. I don't know if he found COVID. Probably, because um, there's probably lots of Ovid. I was just reading over... I was just reading a couple of, they just made me so much, just a couple of, a few quotes that I know you know, but I just, they're just so funny. 
enter Toge wheeled in by French and German ladies of vague conditions in life. <laughs> Art offices in uniform, the prettiest officer making the most of his cheeks. On a sofa, the porter found himself damp and it was not last night's smell. <laughs> Paul Veronese, he suddenly ejaculated, you know Veronese, <laughs> above the sideboard, up in the cupboard, on the wall, on the contrary. Or the short one, up yours. <laughs> <laughs>